little things that happen that we don't see as being traumatizing, a child who's already a little bit feeling fearful is going to assign a deeper meaning to that and create their own story from that. And the story is is not housed in just the brain, it's also in the body. So the body is maintaining that nervous system vigilance forever (laughs) until they get the kind of support and the love and the care and the restorative practices that will help them. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and I have a great episode for you today. Over the past few years, I've seen the word trauma become more and more prevalent in conversations surrounding children, especially differently wired children. So I invited trauma and education expert Sandy Lerman onto the show so we could talk about exactly what's going on with our kids. Have they or are they experiencing trauma at school? What is developmental trauma? What does trauma look like in our children? And how can we respond to and support a child who has experienced trauma? I've been in conversation with Sandy before in her parent community, so I knew this was going to be a rich and important conversation. Sandy comes at this through lived experience as the parent of a young adult adopted at age 10 who has overcome extreme challenges resulting from complex developmental trauma. As a result of her experience, Sandy founded HeartStrong International, a global education company that provides training and coaching programs for parents and teachers of children with developmental trauma. She also offers professional graduate-level programs for trauma-informed specialists, certified parent coaches, and certified educational trainers. So in this episode you're about to listen to, Sandy explains why two different kids might internalize the same experience differently, how kids' bodies hold on to trauma, and the relationship between PDA or pathological demand avoidance and trauma. Sandy also walks us through the key tenets of her trust-based connected parenting method in her HeartStrong system. So if your family is going through a difficult time as a result of your child's relationship with trauma, and it seems like nothing makes or will make a difference, have a listen. This is one of those conversations that is not only full of information, but a big message of hope. And now here is my conversation with Sandy. Hey, Sandy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I am glad to have you on the show. We've been in conversation before with your community, and I've been wanting to bring you on to talk about trauma and all the work that you're doing to support families like ours. But before we get into that, can you introduce yourself in your own way? I always love to hear people's stories about how they got into doing the work that they're doing and how it's tied to their personal why. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I am a mom, first and foremost, I have a a son who's 22 now. I met him when he was six years old, and I adopted him when he was 10. It took four years for us to go through that very long, very, really grueling process of international adoption. Before I met him, though, I was a teacher. So for many, many years, I was in the world of education. And I thought, you know, I really love kids who are a little bit challenging I know that kids who are adopted have some trauma and they need a little extra help. I had had some adopted kids who were in my classroom and I thought, I'm going to do this. I was a solo parent. I went ahead and adopted my son 
And I quickly found out that I was not very well equipped to parent him because I thought because I understood sign language and he's deaf, but I didn't really understand about developmental trauma. So long story short, my journey starts with that adoption and meeting my son Hero, learning more about developmental trauma, and then kind of merging that with my understanding of child development and creating this business, which is for parent coaches and trainers and families who are struggling with children who have developmental trauma. Can you talk a little bit more about your work that you do, your business that you started and how you support families and work with people? Yes, yes. So we started out as a very small parent coaching company. So as I said, I really figured out that I wasn't very well equipped. So I went to all the classes, read all the books, including your book, read many, many experts in the field of trauma and child development. But what I was finding was that for my son, and for others like him, some of these methods were just not working, even though they were connected and helping kids with regulation, those kinds of things. I was frustrated because I would see him going back and forth and back and forth and just not really being able to build that resilience and building build that trust that was needed. So I started out working with other families, doing parent coaching, using the methods that I was using to find success in building that resilience and building that regulation with him. And so now we have grown to include educators as well. So we do some parent coaching and some training of educators, teachers who work with in classrooms with children like mine. And then we also now provide parent coach training and training for educational trainers, those who work in schools who want to train other teachers and other educators, or those who want to create their own consulting or coaching business. So needed. And I love talking with people who've created what they needed in their own world, and then are using that to support other people and get the work out there. So I love that. So you use this term developmental trauma. And I would love if you could define what that is. What is developmental trauma? Trauma is a word that I feel is being used a lot in many different scenarios and environments. And I don't know if there's even a shared understanding of what that is. But let's start with developmental trauma. Yeah, so there are a lot of different kinds of trauma, as you mentioned, a lot of times when people think of trauma, they immediately think of medical trauma or post traumatic stress disorder, veterans who have what we call big T trauma, people who've been through a one-time sort of event that was very traumatic. A child who has experienced ongoing trauma, who usually in the context of relationship, whether that's with a biological family or with an adoptive family or a foster family, doesn't really matter. It's that relationship dysfunction, attachment challenges, feeling unsafe, feeling not like you have somebody who's taking care of you having lots of issues at home. And sometimes there are big T traumas involved in that, whether there are, there's abuse or neglect, those kinds of things. But that, that wires the brain differently, right? So this is what we have in common. Some of them may have other disabilities or differences, but being in sort of the toxic soup of challenge to the fe- sense of felt safety creates a brain that is wired for threat and that is wired for hypervigilance. So a lot of our children who were adopted, or even when we can talk about this with neurodivergence, kids who are different in any way, go through this sense of not feeling safe in the world many times, because the world isn't set up to meet their needs the way they need it done. You know, it's overwhelming, it's 
Some people define trauma as too much, too fast, too soon, right? Trauma is not just what happened to you. It's also, that's the famous phrase from Bruce Perry. He says, it's not what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you. But it's what happened to you. And how did you interpret that? What meaning did you make from that? How do you feel about yourself as a human being in the world? Who's there for you, right? And then who was there for you? Or who is there for you now to create a sense of relational safety? So we really want to look at relationships, attachment, feelings of safety, feelings of being able to be who they are in the world. When that's not there, the brain is wired for threat. And what parents and teachers see is behaviors, right? And that's always the first sign or the symptom of something that's not quite going well in the child's brain and sense of safety. But we can talk about my philosophy on how to handle those behaviors. It's not about the behaviors. It's about what's happening in that child's mind and their heart that's causing them to feel a sense of threat, a sense of fear and overwhelm. And then those behaviors come out. So developmental trauma is usually childhood trauma that has created a a nervous system that is compromised. So are these neurodivergent kids more likely to experience trauma or have their little t traumas impact them in more profound ways? I believe so. And again, I kind of see it as two sides of the same coin. Neurodivergent children, sometimes this happens, developmental trauma can start as early as before birth. (laughs) It's the toxicity of their environment that they're in. And sometimes that's because mom, when she was pregnant, was under a great deal of stress for some reason, right? And so her cortisol and the hormones that are going through her body are affecting that little baby. Baby comes into the world already terrified and scared. Sometimes the birth process is difficult. Sometimes once the baby is born, mom is really stressed out if the child isn't doing what she thinks the child should be doing. Maybe there's a little difference there for whatever reason. Child is learning to trust mom as she's learning to figure out this little baby as they're growing into age one, age two, age three. All of those developmental milestones, if they're any different from what mom's expecting, that's going to increase her stress. And so just even in that primary attachment relationship, there's going to be some stress. If that stress is for too long or it's too much or it's too overwhelming, that child is going to feel afraid. They're going to be more fearful in the world. So we want to make sure that moms are getting the support that they need through things like this podcast, through understanding children, understanding neurodiversity, and all of that can protect a child, right? Until school age, once they get to school, there's so many other things that could be stressful or overwhelming, for a child, you know, and so out in quote, the real world, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for kids who are, have any kind of difference. It doesn't mean that they can't be successful. It doesn't mean that they can't build a healthy nervous system. It just means that we're going to have to add more scaffolding and add more support to make sure that they feel really safe and they feel really understood. Yeah. And I'd love to know how prevalent is this in kids? I mean, certainly in my community, I would venture to say that a majority of parents feel that their children have experienced trauma, or have some kind of PTSD from a school or other experience. So how prevalent is this? I agree with that. I think that when we look at statistics for diagnoses, that's not going to be the same as our our lived experience, right? So we don't want to necessarily just look at the statistics. But the statistics do say that, you know, this was pre pre pandemic, the statistic was that one out of every six children had experienced 
some form of trauma before the age of 16. And that's a lot of kids. And now that we've had the pandemic, and we've had other stressors, economic stressors, you know, there's all different kinds of stress that families are experiencing right now, that adds to the load, right? And so no two children are alike. For some children, the meaning that they make from that stress might not create that traumatic response, that fight, flight, or freeze response. And it might even be two different children in the same family, right? So we, we just don't always know. Some children are a little bit more sensitive to the stress, right? We have highly sensitive children. We have kids with, who have sensory issues. And there are lots of, lots of reasons why a child might be more susceptible to that. But I really do agree with you. I believe that all of our children have the potential to be developing these fight, flight, or freeze type of responses because of the overwhelm and the sense of lack of safety. Yeah. And I just want to mention Anya Kamenetz's book, The Stolen Year. I had her on the podcast last fall. Listeners, if you want to listen to that episode, I'll put a link in the show notes. But we talked a lot about that, the ACEs and the adverse childhood experiences and that a lot of kids experienced because of things like food scarcity and just trauma that they experienced as a result of the pandemic. Right. And of course, before the pandemic, there was a lot of stress, you know, we don't want to just blame it on that. I mean, some of our kids are, there are all of the isms that are out there. There are social, economic, political, you, you name it, there are stresses put upon families and children for so many reasons. And certainly food scarcity and a child who has like mine, who grew up in an orphanage, who grew up with so many, so much lack of nurture and availability of resources, availability of medical care. That's another thing. He almost died at one point and they didn't take him to a hospital when he was two years old. And he ended up with, with hearing loss and is now profoundly deaf. They didn't have the resources to take him to the hospital, right? So there are children in, in here in the U.S. and in Canada as well, right, that have that issue. So there's so many reasons why a child could be experiencing this and be exhibiting behavior And I think we often jump to, oh, it's a behavior disorder. There's a problem with this child. This child has a learning disability. There might be that or there might not be that. It might just be a nervous system response to overwhelm because of their trauma. Or it could be both, right? So we don't want to, sometimes I think we spend too much time trying to label the cause when we really can be responding in compassionate ways that are going to be effective regardless of what the official diagnosis is. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be right back after this quick break. I'm on the road this month and oh man, am I missing my sweet kitties Haskell and Lua. They've been a part of our family for more than two years and I'm so grateful they're keeping Darren such good company while I'm away. If you're getting a new pet soon, you're probably already thinking about everything you'll need to buy. Food, toys, a cozy bed, doggy bags or litter boxes. Something you may not be thinking about, though, is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. 
To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. I want to touch base on school before we kind of move on more deeply. So again, a lot of parents believe that their kids have been traumatized by what happened at school. I probably wouldn't have said that 10 years ago. You know, I would have said this has been a tricky environment or my child has experienced being shamed and things like that. But the word trauma was not something I would have used. I feel like people are using that more freely or maybe just saying this is what I believe is going on. I'm wondering, in terms of our kids at school, could you just explain if something big has to happen? Or can these recurring microaggressions, like a child being repeatedly ostracized or shamed, can that equate trauma? And is that how you would see it if kids have experienced that? Absolutely. And I think it goes back to the idea of this developmental trauma that especially for children, because their brains are growing at such a rapid pace, especially in that first year, it's incredible what's happening to the brain. But even after that, up up to age 25, their brains are still developing, they're still making meaning out of what they're taking in. So that meaning making is shaping their beliefs about who they are and whether the world is safe or not. And this affects a lot of things, right? affects the way they're going to respond. When you ask a child to do something, if they're afraid that you're controlling them, they're going to have a knee-jerk response and say, no, you weren't traumatizing them by asking them that. It was just a simple request. But that demand avoidance comes from that stress and that anxiety and that overwhelm and that hypervigilance of threat. If somebody's going to tell me what to do, I might lose control. That's not safe. If it's not safe, I could die right? And the nervous system is trying to protect them from that sense of threat. There's no real threat there. We we don't assign any meaning of threat to that. But a child's nervous system, if they're assigning threat to everything, 
then they're very overreactive. And that's why we see those behaviors. But yes, absolutely. Little things that happen that we don't see as being traumatizing. A child who's already a little bit feeling fearful is going to assign a deeper meaning to that and create their own story from that. And the story is is not housed in just the brain, it's also in the body. So the body is maintaining that nervous system vigilance forever (laughs) until they get the kind of support and the love and the care and the restorative practices that will help them. You've talked about making meaning. You've mentioned that phrase several times, and I'm interpreting it one way, just how we make sense of what happens or the story we tell ourselves. But how does a child go about doing that? And are some kids inherently more resilient in making meaning? I guess I'm trying to understand what makes the difference between how a child internalizes an experience. It depends on the attachment experience that they've had as an infant, really. A lot of that is going to make make a big difference. It's also going to depend on what kind of ACEs they've experienced at an early age, right? So if they've had a lot of adversity, and we've talked about how that could be environmental, that could be community adversity, that could be relationship adversity. If the parent is very stressed out, the parent might not as be as warm and caring. Some parents aren't as responsive to a baby crying. The baby's laying there, they're crying, nobody's responding. Then they're internalizing that in their bodies, maybe not consciously, but their body is beginning to sort of give up on the idea that anybody's going to come help me when I'm in distress, right? So all of those, those neurons are firing together and wiring together and creating a, a brain body story about whether the world is safe or not, right? And so that story, that's why we call it development because it's developing as the brain is developing. There's a beautiful game. Some of you who are in the field that are listening may know about this game. It's called the brain architecture game. And the idea of this game, and I've used it in parent classes and I've used it to train staff, is that where babies are building their brains And if an adverse experience happens, that's going to yank out a piece of that architecture. And it's going to make that brain weaker and less able to build the architecture that it needs to be resilient. So if a child is in school and they're five, six, seven years old, and they've already had a compromised nervous system, they're going to be more likely to be, have that story in their body of threat, right? If that continues throughout school, by the time you have a middle schooler or a high school kid, it's very, very much what they, how they see the world works. You know, they are, they're pushing back and they've already either given up or they're just very reactive. And it's the longer you wait to give them those protective factors and give them that supportive relationship and help them learn to regulate and co-regulation. That's that attachment piece. We need to provide experiences of safety within relationships that are loving and caring with trusted adults. You talked about the body and you talked about the brain body connection. What does that actually mean when it comes to our kids? How are our kids' bodies holding on to trauma or having that be a part of their very fiber? Yeah, well, I'll give you an example of this. So I mentioned my son when he was adopted had extreme early childhood trauma. And adoption itself is also traumatic. I just want to mention that. That's a source of trauma for children. Foster care and adoption can be very traumatic. You're taking someone away from everything they know. And so him being in my family, this is a new family. This is a new country and culture. Transracial adoption brings its own kind of racial trauma as well. So there's lots of layers to this. 
But because of all of the trauma he's experienced in his young life, he tends to his like his heart rate will shoot up like that in a moment whenever he gets a sense of threat. And he could look very calm and not look like he's upset. But I, I've learned to kind of read the signs of like looking at his facial expression. He will start to sweat. He will start to like his hands turn red. His body has a, has a literal physical reaction to any sense of threat or danger in the environment. And most of it's related to how people are communicating with him. If he senses that a doctor or a provider or an educator or someone doesn't like him or gives him a funny look or doesn't understand him for whatever reason, he will immediately go into that sort of fight, flight, or freeze in that protective mode. And then we have the high heart rate, we have the sweating, we have... And so when you're... It's like if you're running a marathon... You can't really have a conversation with someone. And that's kind of what his body's doing. He's running a little marathon of trying to run away from the tiger that he feels is threatening him. That's not really there, but it's in the story that's in his body. Okay, that's great. Thank you. I just want to say for listeners, we are going to get to how to support kids who are dealing with trauma and who do have these hypervigilant nervous systems. But before we get to that, I also just wanted to touch upon PDA, pathological demand avoidance, or as many people now like to call it, persistent demand for autonomy. You mentioned this demand avoidance or this very extreme reaction to demands being placed on someone that could be very well connected to developmental trauma. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I know there are a lot of listeners here who have demand avoidant kids. Yes. Well, there are two ways of looking at demand avoidance. Of course, PDA is typically associated as a type of autism, right? It's part of in the autistic community, there are people who identify as someone who is a PDA person, and that's kind of part of their identity. And so I want to acknowledge that. And I don't want to discount that experience. I think because PDA is often connected to the stress response, we're seeing demand avoidant kinds of behaviors in any child who has anxiety, they're going to be more likely to be avoidant of anybody controlling them, or forcing them into something or even making the suggestion that they might be forcing them into something, right, even just giving them a look because they put something on the wrong counter or left some a sock on the floor or whatever, like you just took a look at it. And they'll scream at you, I, I was gonna do it. I was, gonna, you know, and so these little what we would term overreactions are body reactions, right? It's this fight, flight or freeze reaction of oh, no, they're going to tell me what to do. This is threatening to my sense of autonomy, right? That persistent demand for autonomy. I can't handle that. It's too much. It's too fast. It's too soon. And so in trauma world that I work in, I'm constantly helping parents learn how to navigate that kind of reactivity, which it has a reason. It's a, there's a stress-related reason. There's a body-related reason. There's a trauma-related reason. It's not that this child is just trying to push your buttons and trying to make your life miserable. I often joke and say, you know, they didn't sit down this morning and create a plan, you know, like the football players have their little map of all their plays for the day. They're not that sophisticated that they're really planning ahead cognitively of how they're going to make your life difficult. What's happening is they're having a brain-body reaction because of stress. They're going into fight, flight, or freeze. The heart rate is going up. They're sweating. Their palms are red. And they're saying no. And what they're saying no to is no, don't scare me. No, don't force me. No, don't push me. They're not saying no, I'm not going to be cooperative with you and help you out with the question you're asking. 
it's it's in how you ask and and the timing sometimes and there's lots of ways that you can invite a child to do something without making them feel forced or coerced. And then over time, the model that we use is, a, I call it the spiraling stages of growth. Over time, you're going to see growth and healing and much less reactive behavior because you've created a relationship of safety and autonomy, right? You want to help build autonomy, build those strengths so the child doesn't feel like they're constantly in this tug of war between the parent and the child. I tell parents, drop the rope. You don't need to be in a tug of war with your child. Drop the rope, go to the other side of the rope, and be on their team. Approach all challenges as a team rather than as a, I told you to do it and you need to do it immediately, right? That doesn't help the nervous system. You're just creating more stress and more likelihood of having those kinds of reactions. And I just want to add because we talk about this piece quite a bit on the show that I recognize that there are people who feel that that's endorsing certain things or that it's too accommodating to a child and it's not teaching them resilience and things like that. But just to remind people that there's really no development that can happen if a child is in fight, flight or freeze mode, like there's no learning or growth. And so getting our kids back to a sense of safety is where we have to start in order for anything to happen. Yeah, and I and I really appreciate that you said that because that was, I think, probably my main frustration in the beginning of all of this when my son was extremely reactive. I mean, we're talking 911 level. Some of the families listening might be in this situation where you've got a child who's dangerous to live with. We had massive, and he's given me permission to share all this, so I just want to let everybody know that, but really massive rages where that were destructive to our home that were I felt that my life or my safety was threatened. His safety was threatened. The dog's safety was threatened. We called 911. We had police in our home. So it was very extreme. I would go to family therapy. I would go to all these workshops and they'd say, you know, just let them help them feel safe. Like you don't understand. I don't even feel safe here. This is so extreme. We've got to get him to the next level where he's not doing this anymore. We've got to get rid of these really extreme behaviors somehow, right? So I understand where parents are coming from when they're saying, well, if we just let him get away with that, what's that going to do? That's why the way that I've structured the model is that we look where they are in their development, where they are in their trauma journey. I call it the spiraling stages of growth and healing. And we look at these various stages and then we address whatever the behavior is depending on where they are in that stage of learning to co-regulate, learning to be in relationship, feeling that they trust you in relationship, having reciprocity. We use a lot of Ross Green and Mona Delahook's behavior techniques to look at what's going on beneath the surface of the behavior and having collaborative conversations and all of that. And then eventually to build that resilience, the resilience can't come and the behaviors can't improve until you have a child who feels safe and regulated, the body's regulated, they're in a really trusting relationship. And the great news is that once that happens, you're going to see more and more of the child having autonomy that is the kind of behavior that the parent feels safer with themselves. And they, they feel like they're seeing progress. They feel more that the child's more cooperative and there's more happiness and joy in the family and you're not always in conflict or fear. That sounds very hopeful for you to say that we want to get to a place where kids feel safe and they are regulated. So you saying that 
what I take from that is that that's possible. And my hunch is that there are listeners who are like, that is not possible in my family. We'll be right back after this quick break. If you listen to the show, you probably know that at least one in five children is differently wired. But did you know that approximately one in two women will experience hair thinning? If you're part of that 50%, you are absolutely not alone. But because hair thinning for women isn't something people openly talk about, going through it can feel lonely and frustrating. So why not do something about it with Nutrafol? Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Everyone's root causes of hair thinning are different, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth isn't going to cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow throughout different stages, postpartum, menopause, even for different lifestyles like a plant-based diet. To get your personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes, you can take a simple hair wellness quiz on Nutrafol.com. And because there's no prescription required, you can quickly get set up online with free shipping and automated deliveries, which make it so much easier to stick with your new hair care routine. See results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code TILT. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code TILT. That's Nutrafol.com promo code TILT. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. Where would you encourage parents to even start to embrace this idea and to start this journey for themselves? Thank you for saying that. Yes, there is so much hope in our family and not just my family, but many of the families that I've worked with. It seems that somehow, and I didn't set out to become an expert in highly explosive and aggressive children. That was never a dream of mine, right? When I adopted or when I started doing parent coaching, this wasn't, I think I'm going to help really kids who are 
have to you have to call someone to come help you because they're attacking you. These things never crossed my mind when I went into adoption. But I realized that, okay, this is something I know how to handle now. Because I've really embraced this idea of starting with compassion for yourself and for the child in front of you, no matter what is happening in the moment. There's a lot of mindfulness, a lot of there's a lot of inner work that has to happen for the parent to be able to calm their own nervous system to the point where they can really support a child who has a compromised nervous system. And I like to remind parents, your child might look like they're fine. You know, you just look at them and they, oh, this is a 12-year-old. But deep inside that child, there is a one-year-old baby screaming for attention, screaming for help, terrified of whatever the thing is that they're terrified of. And that nervous system is compromised, just like if you had a child with a severe disability who needed to use a wheelchair, who needed to be on a ventilator, who needed to be, you know, you would not expect them to do all of the things that you're expecting this child with a compromised nervous system to be able to do. We have to heal that nervous system first to a certain level, right? It's not going to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect. You know, even adults have good and bad days with our own nervous systems, right? We have days where we snap or we are more stressed out and we can't handle as much. So that child, if they, if we know they have a compromised nervous system and we've already said the majority of the children that we're talking about on this podcast are in that situation where they're going into a stress response because the world is too fast, too soon, too early, too, too much, right? So if we know that, then we need to reduce our expectation for now, not forever. Okay. And so, you know, Ross Green's famous quote about it's not that they, you know, it's not that they won't do something, it's that they can't do it. And I like to add the word yet. And yet is the hopeful word, because just because today your child can't, you know, uh, respond to a demand without having a massive explosive episode, doesn't mean that next year, two years from now, three years from now, that might go completely away. And I can tell you from my life experience, that's exactly what has happened. My son does not react to those things like that at all anymore, compared to what he was like when I first adopted him. Thanks for the reminder of the word Yet, that's something my therapist reminded me of last night, in fact, and it is a very powerful word, (laughs) a good one to have in our back pocket. You mentioned helping our kids heal their own nervous systems and heal from their trauma. We've done episodes on somatic therapy. We haven't done one on EMDR specifically, but I'm wondering, do you have specific modalities that you feel are most helpful for kids who have experienced trauma to recover from that? Yes, I, I love all of those somatic modalities. I love the EMDR. I love anything somatic experiencing anything that's a little bit non traditional. I'm not sure cognitive behavioral therapy is always effective, because that's, that's somebody who has a pretty solid executive function who's able to talk through things, right, and kind of see cause and effect and all of that. A lot of our kids, it's really just their body reacting. It's not like, it's not like they're doing it on purpose, right? My son this is really typical, he would go to a therapy session. And he was perfect in therapy. And he was perfect in group therapy. He had a case manager who had taught him coping skills. So here are all the coping skills. And let's put a picture of them on the wall. And these are all the things you're going to do when you're feeling stressed. And he'd say yes, and he'd draw them. And, you know, and then when he's having an episode, when he goes into fight, flight, or freeze, he's not able to access any of that. My strong belief is that 
all of those sort of cognitive types of therapies are wonderful, for, but only in two situations. When the child is old enough to really want to talk about their trauma, and when they're cooperative and, and they're going and, they're, and they feel like it's benefiting them. So I think the person whose therapy is the, is the parent, because they need to regulate their own nervous system first. As far as what helps a child heal, I think any of those somatic kinds of things. For my son, he goes to art therapy. He's a phenomenal artist, and art is the way he expresses himself the most clearly, and it's his, it's his love language is art and creating worlds of his own design. And so he uses art to reduce his stress, but also to express his, his deep, most inner feelings, right? And so I think art therapy, animal therapy, all of those things can be really effective. But the number one thing that is the most effective is healing within a trusted relationship, developing a relationship of trust and cooperation and collaboration, and not forcing the child and helping them feel that they are safe, loved and accepted for exactly who they are, exactly where they are on that spiral that I mentioned before. If you're in crisis, the first stage is crisis. The only thing you can do is respond with compassion. There's not going to be any growth right now. We're not working on growth and healing. We are working on being compassionate, first for ourselves and then for the child. Once they have moved out of crisis, once they feel safe enough that they're not destroying your home, attacking people or hurting themselves, whatever the crisis is, right? Kids are hospitalized. Things happen. Nervous systems can cause a lot of damage to a lot of things. So Once we move out of crisis and they feel safe, then we're going to start having conversations. We're going to start building that resilience. We're going to start really collaboratively and gently giving them experiences of safety where they can feel success in trying something new emotionally or academically or whatever it happens to be that's the challenge, right? And then we just baby step that and we scaffold and they grow a little bit more and we scaffold and they grow a little bit more. And then eventually you take those, that scaffolding off or you take those training wheels off and they don't always have to co-regulate with you. They can start to self-regulate more and more. But we start with co-regulation. You are going to be the executive function and the nervous system for the entire family <laughs> for a little while, right? Your calm nervous system, there's a thing called mirror neurons. You're c- going to be contagious to your child, just like your child's nervous system is contagious to you. Studies show that when we are in a state, a heightened state of fight, flight, or freeze, other people around us are going to feel that too. But when you calm down yourself, the child will eventually calm with you. Over time, with a lot of modeling, a lot of practice, a lot of reassurance, the child will learn their own coping strategies. And Hero uses his art. He uses pets. I'm trying to think what else he uses. There's lots of different things that we do. I do things like if I see that he's really upset, if he'll allow me to give him a hug, sometimes a warm, a, a firm hug is helpful. I don't believe in restraining kids when they're having an explosive episode. That's a whole other training that I do. I call it how to tame the trauma dragon. But it's really not about forcing or coercing. It's about creating safety, helping the body. So I do a thing where I will rub his the palms of his hand. Sometimes he'll ask me to massage his scalp. Things that bring the body to a state of calm and then give you the happy hormones that are going to help calm that nervous system. But he won't be able to allow me to do that if he doesn't trust me. So we had to spend a long time developing that trust, developing that relationship first. 
such important advice and thoughts. And I can imagine there are lots of people listening who want to know how to get better at this. Can you talk about the way that listeners might be able to engage through the work that you do to get that kind of support? Yes, absolutely. So we at HeartStrong International, we provide parent coaching. We also have certified parent coaches. So we have a lot of coaches that are really all over the world. Most are in the US and Canada, but we do have a coach that's in New Zealand. We have another coach from Australia who's going to be joining us soon. I think we have one in Great Britain that's thinking about joining us too. So we're really trying to equip folks in different parts of the country, in different communities. We have an organization, we're working with a a Latinx organization, and we're going to be training some of their parent educators as well. We really want to get this work into the hands of as many people as we can, because I can't parent coach everybody, right? There's so many families that need this information. So if you contact us at HeartStrong, you can hop on on a Zoom with me, or I can refer you to one of the coaches that, that might be a good fit for you to get some more information about that. But you can also go to my blog, read some of the, the articles there and kind of see, see what's going on there. I have a couple of YouTube trainings and things you can check out as well. Yeah, I just want to say, I'm so glad that you do this work. And for listeners who are experiencing this, I know this is really hard stuff. If you have a child who has experienced trauma or multiple traumas, who may be expressing that trauma in ways that feel scary and big, it can be incredibly overwhelming. And Sandy, I feel like everything you share and the energy you bring to this, your experience, the love and passion that you have for this, it's so hopeful. And I hope that listeners are feeling that, that listeners, if they're in this situation, are feeling like we can actually figure this out. There's hope for my family. Yeah, I just want to thank you for that. You mentioned HeartStrong International. Of course, I'll have a link to that in the show notes pages. Anywhere else where you'd like listeners to engage with you? Yeah, like I said, I'm on YouTube. I have some blog posts and things that they can read. If anyone wants to talk to me about their child, I'd be happy to, you know, just give you some free resources as well just to get you started. We have cohorts every four months. We do cohorts where we train people in our HeartStrong model in that spiraling stages of growth and how to really assess, I I call it assessing and then addressing where they are right now, because we can't do everything immediately at once, right? It's a, it's a baby step process, but over time growth does happen. Healing does happen. It just takes a commitment to following a different kind of model. That's not punitive that's not coercive, that's not this sort of, we need to get them to understand authority, all of that, kind of the old punitive, old school things. It's a very gentle approach, but it's also very effective. And it builds capacity based on a feeling of self-efficacy. When children feel that they're able to be successful, then they want to be more successful. They want to be in a relationship more. If we're just forcing children and, and controlling them all the time, they lack that sense of internal motivation and, and desire to, to improve. So that's the kind of model this is. It's, it's, I call it Olympic level parenting. So those of you who are listening who have children who are extremely explosive and aggressive because of trauma, developmental trauma, it takes a parent who's committed to having a really strong nervous system and is ready to do the work to be that strong anchor for all the storms that are going to come so that child learns to calm down quicker, 
we talk about the lift factors, the length, the intensity, the frequency, and the triggers are going to reduce over time. And they're going to be more and more resilient over time. And I've seen every parent that I've worked with, 100% of them have seen some degree of growth and healing when using this model. So yes, there's so much hope. And I don't want anybody to give up. Don't listen to the people that tell you your child has reactive attachment disorder. That's just the way they're going to be for the rest of their lives. I don't agree with that because my son had that diagnosis. He had all the diagnoses, intermittent explosive disorder, PTSD, possible mood disorder, you know, all he had a really long list of psychiatric diagnoses. If he were to be evaluated now, he would not have, he still has some anxiety and depression, but he does not have that explosive rage, destructive, what people term reactive attachment disorder. He doesn't have any of that anymore because he trusts me and his nervous system is now calm. So there's so much hope. Thank you. That's so good to hear. I so appreciate, again, the work that you're doing, that you turned your life experience into such a generous offering for so many people. So thank you. Thanks for everything you shared today. It was really lovely to chat with you. And thank you for the work that you do. It's, it's wonderful. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To go deeper into this episode, visit the extensive show notes page. For every episode, there's a dedicated page on my website with links to all the resources mentioned, a full transcript, and a podcast player with key takeaways marked so you can easily go back and re-listen to the sections you're most interested in. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. This episode was edited by Andrea Curtis Amasquita, and show notes were put together by myself, Andrea, and Lindsay McFadden. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, and it's super easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash parenting to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. To follow Tilt Parenting on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by the listeners who need it by subscribing and leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about this podcast or any of the resources that Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the no guilt mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.